Today is the magnificent Vanessa Carlisle. Ah, oh, thank you. Also, still not sick. <laughs> still not sick too. Uh, Home in the Know is a podcast about sex work by sex workers for sex workers. We begin every episode with a segment we call Historical Hose. And this week's historical ho is Edith Piaf. Ah, right. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, so great. I got, um, or my sources uh, for this are Maggie McNeil, the Honest Courtesan. Honestly, if you're not reading stuff by Maggie McNeil, you're definitely sleeping on something fantastic. And she has like three books out full of like history of various sex workers, um, short form stories and stuff like that. And she's just incredible. So please check her out. And then uh, also Whores of Yore, who's always full of amazing information. I love Whores of Yours so much. Right? (laughs) I'm just like so uh, thankful for everybody who is like collecting information and putting, creating an archive of like the history of sex work, like, and and they're doing an amazing job. Yeah, I love sex worker history Instagram too. They're always, they're always putting things on there that I've never seen. Totally. And I look at archives, so I'm always like, what? Where did this come from? I love them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's so good. It's just like, I love like having that kinship. Yeah. Um, So yeah, feel free to pipe up at at any time. No, no, please. Okay. Genuinely. (laughs) So uh, Edith Giovanna uh, Gaisson was born in Paris in December 1915 to Anita Millard, an alcoholic French-Italian Moroccan street singer and part-time prostitute whose stage name was uh, Liné Marsa. And Edith's father, uh, Louis Alphonse Gaisson, was a roving Norman street acrobat. Pretty dope beginnings. (laughs) 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 Um, So both of her parents, while kind of dope in their own right, uh, were terrible parents and more or less ditched out on her immediately. So Edith went to live with her maternal grandma, who was also not fantastic either and very much neglected. Poor little Edith. So eventually, I think it was her father or her sister, like one of her older sisters, um, like took little baby Edith, or I guess young child Edith, to her paternal grandmother who owned a brothel in Brunei. And that's kind of where she spent a lot of her early years under the collective care of sex workers. Um, So at one point, Edith got this ridiculous case of pink eye where she temporarily went blind and all the hoes pulled money together and sent her to be healed. And I think they sent her to like some kind of church or like place that had like miraculous occurrences and stuff, like hoping that she would be like, you know, healed by divine intervention uh, regardless, it's the intention that matters. And her pink eye cleared up, and she's like, I don't know what happened, but um, I'm better. <laughs> so I thank them. So, anyway, um, sometime between 1922 and 25, her father reclaimed her and took her on the road with him uh, through the rest of the decades. So, he performed on street corners and circuses and nightclubs, and she started to sing um, and contribute through her singing at the tender age of 10 and she was able to draw quite an audience uh so 
her dad entered into this serious relationship with his girlfriend and the girlfriend moved in with him and Peter or Edith at which point Edith was like yo like we can't all fit in this tiny apartment I'm Audi so she left at 15 and began a tumultuous independent journey with her BFF Simone Mimone and Bertou I actually I can't pronounce French shit I have no idea so my best guess so Sorry, e- I can't help. No, please. <laughs> Somebody help me. <laughs> Anybody I, call I know in you right have to now. Make two different shapes with your mouth. That's right? really all I know. <laughs> Somebody call in right now. This is definitely a hundred percent live show. <laughs> um, so Edith sang, and uh, Momo and Edith sang and begged and sold sex. Um, they were trying to escape scrape together enough money for like a room every night and when they couldn't they slept in parks or alleys so at some point edith fell in love with a delivery boy named louis dupont and together they had a child named marcel but the relationship didn't last because louis wanted edith to work a normal job and she was like i'm a bad bitch i'm about to drop the number one single worldwide i can't wait around with your mediocre ass au revoir loser so she left Lewis and her baby and uh, for herself, you know, uh, and also for this hot soldier and returned to street life. So sadly, baby Marcel died of meningitis at age two. And so Edith uh, prostituted herself to pay for the funeral. So she briefly became involved with a pimp named Albert, who she initially wasn't worried about. But shortly after, he began abusing her and she left him after he held a gun to her head, as you do. So in October of 1935, Edith was finally discovered by uh, Louis Leple, I don't know, a former drag queen who now owned one of the most fashionable nightclubs in Paris. Uh, Leple knew talent when he heard it and offered the, okay, I'm quoting directly from um, Whores of Your, or not Whores of Your, uh, uh, The Honest Courtesan, and <laughs> when I say, he offered the, quote, dirty, unkempt waif. <laughs> it's my new moniker. <laughs> dirty, unkempt waifs unite. <laughs> he offered her a job, and he cleaned her up, and he put her in a simple black dress. He picked 10 songs for her and built her as La Momon, La Momé Piaf, which is a Parisian slang for Kid Sparrow, because she was short, only 4'10", which is hard for me to imagine right now like tiny tiny Edith Piaf and she also looked super sad and honestly for good reason considering all that we have covered so uh she had a super successful debut and was signed to Polydor Records in January um January of that year which we said was 1935 hey dates so, um, unfortunately, her initial success was cut short when Lepre was murdered uh, April 16th, 1963. So, hardly any time after. Actually, I mean, I guess she had, like, a good little stint. <laughs> um, people suspected that Edith, with her shady background, quote-unquote, might somehow be at fault, even though she was not. And so she went to Belgium to, like, chill until the heat died down. But then she returned to France a year later, hoping to stage a comeback. So she still had her connections from her initial success. She was still like, you know, that kid Sparrow. So she hit up one of her songwriter homies, uh, Raymond Asso, 
to help, and he changed her stage name to Piaf and kept her away from bad influences and asked another great songwriter, uh, Mono, to help him write songs, drawing on her, quote, street background, which I would really like <laughs> further definition on. But I guess also if I understood French, I would probably know exactly what this meant in the, in the case of Edith's songs. Anyway, so um, also became Edith Piaf's lover and essentially my fair lady slash pretty woman her into a proper star. Um, but remember, this was during World War II. So Asso was drafted in the autumn of 1939. And Edith was like, bitch, I'm too bad to wait for a man, period. So she left him for another successful singer named Paul uh, Maurice. Who knows? It's amazing to me that she survived all these breakups. I feel like these people would have been extremely possessive and crazy. Oh my God, right? <laughs> like no. she left them and lived. It's she, awesome. She left them. She lived and she had so many and we are not even halfway through her lover's list. So it's it's truly impressive. She's prolific in many ways. <laughs> so they had a tempestuous relationship that suddenly like pushed Edith into like the realm of like the rich and powerful but eventually she also left him and she like, cause she like missed her life. So she moved into an apartment above a brothel with her old friend, Momo. So cute, right? <laughs> so the brothel catered to the Gestapo. So as a result, Edith kind of made friends with a bunch of Nazis. I mean, she partied with them and they hired her as a singer for their parties. Um, and Ooh, that feels like wall street guys too, right? right? Like that feeling of like, I will take your money and I hate you and I will smile. Exactly. How intense that is. Fucking sleeping with the enemy. We know that so well. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. Leaves you with that slimy feeling, but, um, you know, you do what you got to do. So she was accused of conspiring with the enemy of treasonous acts and all that. But instead of being killed for her treasonous Nazi ties, she was like, hey, like, I'm actually just a part of the resistance, you know, like, here are all the reasons why. She's like, oh, I dated a Jewish guy and I helped this other Jewish person escape to France. And I also wrote it like a protest song, you know, and I refused to take it off of my set list, even though the Nazi friends of mine were not happy. And she also maybe posed for some publicity photographs with prisoners that were then used to construct fake papers, which allowed them to escape camp. Um, so reasonable reasons mm. that she could have been part of the resistance, although probably she was just kind of like a bystander in the whole situation, as we tend to be. So uh, yeah, normal rebellion stuff. And uh, she recorded her signature song, Le Vie en Rose, in 1946 and went on to international acclaim, although the Americans initially thought she was kind of a drag because of her super sad life and all, but they warmed up to her. Um, so while in New York, she began an affair with uh, Marcel Cerdan, a middleweight boxing champion, and he was apparently the great love of her life, but he died tragically in a lane crash only a few years later in 1949. Um, so this kind of started her downward spiral of drugs and alcohol plus morphine that initially was prescribed to her uh, after a serious injury from an auto accident. Um, so 
They say that this was kind of like her downward spiral, but she also managed to get married twice more after that. So <laughs> it was probably like, okay, enough. <laughs> um, so anyway, eventually she died of liver cancer, October 11th, 1963. And the Catholic church was like, we don't condone her lifestyle. But France was like, but have you heard Livy on Rose? <laughs> so, so she's, you know, was and is missed to this day. And so that's the tragic, but also really kind of ball and diva life of Edith Piaf. Beautiful. I, that's so great. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So I feel like we need to probably start by addressing this f- fucking crazy elephant in the room, which is that we're all kind of quarantined or supposed to be. Uh, what is it? We're supposed to be social distancing and quarantining as much as we can, avoiding unnecessary travel or unnecessary contact with people. And it's been a wild week. Like, literally, this started a week ago, like, when things started to get, like, maybe things are going to get crazy. And then it's full shit show. Yeah, and it's changing fast. It is. And just, you know, for those who are concerned about you and me, I feel like we have practiced some good social distancing. Mm-hmm. Um we both are mostly touching our own objects. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're being careful and, uh, you know, this is a one-on-one situation. It's not a gathering. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like to a certain extent, we are all now under some moral obligation to justify every time we leave the house. Oh my God, yeah. And um, so while I I think that's rude, um, <laughs> I I, I also would like to put some people's fears at rest if they are afraid for us. That like, yeah. we're good. We're doing we're doing the best we can here. We're also somewhat far apart from each other. Right now. <laughs> probably like five feet apart from each other recording this, like yeah. I would say. Like, so we're we're not quite the six feet uh C D C recommended distance, but we are very close. And we're both healthy. And we're both healthy. Um I don't have any I'm asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. Vanessa is asymptomatic, and we both haven't been in contact with sick with sick people. Yeah, right? so no, I don't. This think is so. about the best we can do right now. It's really about all we can do, and it's like we're trying to. It's it's hard to sustain any level of normalcy right now. As much as like my impulse is to try to cling on to it and be like, I'm going to fight and try and do things and like live my life, but it's the reality is that it's not going to happen. <laughs> no, and in fact, I think the sooner that we can transform. Uh, our disappointment at the end of normalcy into a kind of hope for what it looks like to have habit change <laughs> and to have, you know, some some new awareness of the connectedness. I mean, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to spin out into, you mm-hmm. know, into a bunch of stories about that. But I do have a sense of like there is a way for us to see this as opportunity for a new way of being that is actually more caring towards each other and towards ourselves. Hmm. Um, How so? What are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking about the last couple of days, how many hours I have spent on FaceTime with people who it's hard to get a hold of. Oh God. Yeah. Um, and how many times people have been reaching out to me and the way that the chains and webs of care in just my personal network are functioning. So like, some of us are passing around the same 25 bucks, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in a way that's like, 
really beautiful. It's like we're we're sending each other money. We're contacting each other. Yeah. We are looking out for each other. Like um, I know that there's a lot of people who are not currently in a social network in, in real life that can take care of them. And so we're all thinking a, a step or two outside of even our loved ones. Like who do I know that's isolated? Who do I know that's living alone who might need to get checked on? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had... I, I live in a building where the landlords live next door mm-hmm. and they're an elderly couple. Aww. And um, so I've checked on them a couple of times in a way that like normally the tenant landlord relationship is fraught is pretty it's fraught. fraught. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that those little moments of kind of stepping outside are really valuable to me. And mm-hmm. I had to call to cancel my eye doctor's appointment oh. and I'm on the phone with the person. And, and at first it's like, Hello, how can I help you? How can I get a good, you know? And then like two minutes in, she says, oh, this is so crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like such a great, like unprofessional, just real moment where I'm like, yeah, this is damn crazy. Like this is a lot. And, you know, she was able to like get my over, like my prescription is done. Like it's, Uh um, it's expired. And she was able to fill it for the next few months. Oh, you know? oh my God. That's and so it's good. just like these kinds of basic things that we feel like it gets, it's really hard a lot of the time. Yeah. And there's something in the desire to connect with each other and to treat each other better that I'm seeing, mm-hmm. um, that I'm trying to kind of focus my energy on because the anxiety is immense. intense. It's immense. I think I go between being very grateful to have the network of people that I have that are so caring and like everybody's checking in on me and on other people. And I see this amazing show of community and then like internally screaming. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, and also people, when they panic, all their worst comes out too. Oh yeah. And I, I feel like I'm seeing that too. I, I mean, I think with all of the videos of people like fighting over toilet paper and like wrestling old people for resources, I'm like, what? what is going on here? Have What have we lost like with our human decency in this situation? Right. Especially in America, because like there's not like truly a lack of resources for the most part. Like we're still producing things at a normal rate. And it's just like, but the fear is just like people are hoarding and people are thinking that there's like the scarcity. And it's really that mindset that's like creating the scarcity. And that's unfortunate. But on the positive side, um, I've had some great people reach out to me. There was like one person um, that I don't even know in real life, but apparently like uh, she lives nearby and she was like, hey, I'm like making these herbal remedies for people and like these immunity boosters, especially for sex workers. Like I made you a pack if you want it. And that is so cute. I know it's so sweet. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is like the most adorable wonderful thing and so I'm gonna go by and pick that up and like be so grateful and it's and I'm trying to I mean personally I am in this spot where like I am one of the more economically secure people in my network and I'm like trying to figure out ways like what can I do like how can I hire my friends who like suddenly lost their jobs and they very much live paycheck to paycheck and like I'm lucky enough to not have that fear like, what can I do? How can I, how can we all support each other? So it is that moment of coming together while simultaneously kind of watching our government bumble around and really fuck shit up. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was saying recently, like, you know, 
I mean, I used to live in an intentional community and, um, there was a time where we lived in a house, a group, there were, the community was larger than just the people in the house, but there were seven of us in the house and we had garden boxes and we had like, you know, we had like a lot going on that felt very self-sustained and, and self-contained. And when I think about like, if we were getting quarantined in that house right now, like mm-hmm. I think, I think we would have opened it up to friends of ours who were unhoused to live there. And we would have, you know, like we would have made it like a functioning commune because that's the answer when you have resources like that and when people need it. Um, And I think that that's, I know that that's happening. There's like, there's tons of little anarcho-communist communes around here Mm -hmm. that have been handling their shit forever, you know, and people who live in their kind of um, like mainstream American households just don't have the skills that a lot of, um, you know, people who've either been living off the grid or who've been living in community or who have been poor for a long time. Like there's a lot of skill building Mm -hmm. that goes on in that situation. Um, so I, my hope is that there will be some transfer of wisdom Mm -hmm. that is allowed where people who know how to handle their resources and know how to share and know how to do mutual aid, especially mutual aid, that there will be people now who are like, oh shit, like the way that I've been living doesn't work mm-hmm. anymore. And yeah, I do, it doesn't I do work in this worst look. case scenario. Yeah. It truly does not. I mean, it reminds me of the Occupy moment. Really? Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And it also reminds me of right after SESTA FOSTA in the sort of sex work specific context where, you know, almost everyone I know overnight lost yeah. almost everything. Yeah. And it was like the clients are gone. Yeah. The advertising pro- platforms are gone. Sometimes your banking is frozen well, or seized. Yeah. Your, your Venmo is taken your, you know, and, and the panic that set in the anxiety that set in mm-hmm. the way that we were scrambling, having group meetings with people who I hadn't seen for years, yeah. you know, reconnecting with each other, trying to give each other help, trying to offer each other ideas. Um, All of this information about how to keep yourself safe online started happening. Like, you know, we did lose people Mm. and we lost resources, but we also found ways to organize that were new to us, you know, and that was just a couple of years ago. I know. And we, and we also had like the necessity to do it too. I mean, there is like this added necessity to like evaluate things as they are and like what we've accepted to be normal and how resources are distributed as normal and just all of this is completely challenged because we're seeing all of the failings of how that worked and how it's completely unequal and how people are definitely suffering as a result and it's like it's not something that we're going to easily forget or at least I hope we won't like that's always my hope with (laughs) the kind of like American memory is like that we will recall anything like a decade from now. I I mean like, but there's nothing, I mean, I've talked to my clients who are older, like who are, who are in their like, you know, 50s, 60s. And even they're like, I've never seen anything of this scale. Like there's nothing comparable in my lifetime to this. Yeah. It does feel unprecedented in some very major ways. And I think it is, I Mm -hmm. think it is unprecedented in the way that it has not that a pandemic is unprecedented, but Mm -hmm. we haven't had one in this era. No. And Mm -hmm. so here we are doing all of these new things. Um, But then there's some parts that are just, you know, 
that are going to be the same. Like if people are quarantining at home in 1918, there were people getting beat up for quarantining at home. And there's going to be people who are in danger now, Mm -hmm. right? Where their home is not their safe place to be, Mm -hmm. even if they have one. Like there are certain things that are going to be the same that we're going to have to figure out how to handle just as communities and, and as people who care about each other. But we have unprecedented tools mm-hmm. and we have unprecedented, you know, social structures. And so how, how are we going to handle it? It's, it's, it's amazing to watch when you're not in the swirl of the scary. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, on the other side, there's like some deeply comedic things that have come out of this. Like fucking uh, Jared Leto went off into the wilderness or something for like a personal retreat and reemerged like yesterday. <laughs> I just like, oh my, the world has changed. What a difference 12 days can make. Whoa. <laughs> like imagine, like he literally crawled under a rock and reemerged. <laughs> right. Feeling sage, I'm yeah, sure. Feeling sure. very feeling calm and fantastic. Sage. He's like, oh, I centered myself. <laughs> and now I'm prepared. <laughs> Is Oof. he though? I mean, like, how can you? Oh. It's maybe like all of the challenges that he anticipated having to deal with as like a megastar or like doing that kind of thing are completely different now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's hilarious. Also, half hilarious, half uh, an an incredible example of the wealth gap is uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, like self-quarantined on his private island with his family. Oh, boy. (laughs) He's like, I'm just going to be on my private island until this dies down. Yeah, with my staff. <laughs> with my staff, with my armed guards, probably, you know, yeah. and my family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's like, and then a million and one other people, like other rich who are kind of like in their bug out shelters and stuff, you know, they've taken over mines in Kansas and stuff and like turned them into fallout shelters and they're out there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking of um, eating the rich (laughs) like every day. I'm also thinking of the way that people who have that kind of resource, a lot of them have been planning for like environmental collapse, environmental disaster. They have, you know, ways to get out of town that the rest of us don't. They have, you know, they, they resources uh, allocated. Yeah. They, they already have disaster uh, plans Mm -hmm. that, that I think a lot of people don't have. And that, that when I think about like, especially the Bay area, like LA has a hundred ways out, but the Bay doesn't, Mm. there's bottlenecks going to happen if people Mm -hmm. start trying to get out of the Bay. Right. And you know, I don't, I'm not trying to doomsday. I mean, we're already in doomsday. Yeah, I mean, you know, there. like, could I, could I get weirder? I don't <laughs> could know. Could it get weirder? <laughs> I don't think so. I think it could. I think it could get weirder. I mean, that's probably but, true. Every time I've said it can't get weirder, it has consistently gotten weirder this week. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're still not under a shelter in place order. And we, and we, you know, so like you and I right now are not breaking the law by being out of our homes. Yeah, but in SF, it's a misdemeanor. Right, right. And that's a martial law situation that Americans are not thought of as people who will succumb to that, who will tolerate that. Like that's Mm -hmm. a lot of, that's a lot of what, you know, why it doesn't happen Mm -hmm. is because the idea is that Americans will rebel against that kind of thing. But if you make them terrified enough, you know, I mean, is this a moment where 
we're going to see some sort of weird, widespread, renewed faith in the police. Oh my God. I'm worried about that. Like, I don't, I don't I am too. want that to be an outcome here. I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's not going to happen for all communities for sure. Like, I don't think black people are ever going to trust the police, but it's like, there might be that kind of like outpouring of support. But the other thing is that it's just like, it's fucking crazy. So like my primary partner is uh, an attorney, a defense attorney. And so right now he's just been, I mean, he is not even really permitted to go to work until Friday. So the courts are only operating at like less than half capacity. And so there's only so many attorneys on staff to handle arraignments. And so there's like this order out with the police that says now like no unnecessary petty arrests. (laughs) (laughs) I know you could do that last week. I know exactly. But this week, keep your hands off them. But this week, try not to do unnecessary law enforcement shit. Holy shit. And that's how we know that, you know, that's how we know, right? Like that's how we see the cracks in these systems is Uh when they're like, well, we're not going to punish you financially for not making all your callers, mm-hmm. right? And by the way, your prescription can just get refilled. Yeah. And by the way, um, no parking tickets. Uh, exactly. <laughs> There's no parking tickets right now, in case you did not know that in LA. Like they're not for street in, sweeping. For, for street sweeping and stuff. Meters like, are still functional. Okay. Well, they're generally much more lenient about like parking violations right now because there's just not the the power to do it. There's not the manpower out right now, woman power, litigating power, everything to like issue citations and have everything staffed. So, so I think it's one of the beautiful things about this is the way that it's just lifting the veil on all of these ways in which daily life is, you know, structured. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, there's all these great theorists who have been writing about this forever and I don't I don't want to get too nerded out on it but I I could I'm ready I'm ready (laughs) I could I'm definitely a nerd so I'm here for this but like you know I mean Foucault was talking about this 40 years ago like there's there's actually like a lot of intellectual work that's been done to try to imagine what would happen if there was a cataclysmic change in the way that people had to see their daily lives. Mm-hmm. And anyone who who has lived for a time in another country where daily life just worked differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and Americans, of course, don't do this for the most no. part. So Americans don't Americans know. don't leave for the but most part. If you've spent time anywhere else or if you've been in jail yeah. or if you've been hospitalized for a long time, any any of these ways in which we encounter a different set of rules for daily life, you start feeling like, oh, shit. It doesn't have to be that way, Mm -hmm. the way that it normally is. And so right now people are scared. So I don't know how much processing of this information is going to happen in this moment, but I'm hoping that in the next few years, what we see is a deeper sense of resistance to the injustices that are everyday life. I know exactly. I mean, it's, I, I feel this like with the whole law enforcement thing, like, especially like, you know, the fact that they've been like creating all of these bullshit reasons to arrest people. And like, finally, like, they're like, oh, well, well you know, I guess we can't do that. We don't have the resources. Like they and haven't had the resources they for have years. Never had the the jails have been too full for years. Exactly. And Supreme Court came down and said, you're fucking up California in 2009. 
it is infuriating and and also like so with Ohio the Ohio governor or whatever like finally like releasing prisoners that you know have been held for an indeterminate amount of time for reasons that you know could have been resolved ages ago like they're finally getting around to it because they just don't have the beds they don't have the space they don't have the resources and I and it's just fucking blows my mind that it takes this, you know, like it takes a fucking pandemic for these like reforms that overall would save the country so much money and general resources and benefit us in a million and one ways that it takes this level of emergency for anybody to like put these things into action. And it also shows me how quickly these things can be put into action. Oh Yes, because everybody says, oh, it will take too long. It's just an endless bureaucratic process. And we need to talk to this person and it needs to get approved by this agency. And you know, that takes about like X amount of time and then it has to go back. And it's like, well, apparently not. Apparently (laughs) not. I mean, this is like, I've been having this conversation for a long time too, where it's like, listen, people who tell you that reforms take time are people who believe in the system they're actually trying to reform. They believe in it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, to some extent people have to, right? I get it. They, they, they want to go the the legal route for stuff. Mm -hmm. But frankly, if fascism can happen this fast, so could revolution. Mm -hmm. Like, and I'll say that word because Mm -hmm. I haven't been allowed to say it for a very long time, but like, guess what? This is a moment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is a moment where it's worth thinking about how quickly the tables can turn, how quickly neighborhoods right now could be Mm self-sustaining, you know, um, if people were willing Mm -hmm. to get to know their neighbors and to do mutual aid. There's a neighborhood in Oakland that for years, Critical Resistance, which is a prison abolition group, Mm -hmm. um, was working with them to try to create a model of of self-sustaining, self-policing. And they didn't even use the word policing. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm blanking on what the name was. But the idea was that the OPD, the Oakland Police Department, was not welcome in this neighborhood and that they were going to handle their affairs internally. Mm -hmm. Now, some people are afraid of like, you know, violent tribal justice mm-hmm. when you start when you start working within these yeah. models right but that was not the idea the idea was what if we actually had a couple of city blocks where people knew that they could rely on each other that they were going to take care of each other and that there were immediate consequences mm-hmm. for behaving badly yeah <laughs> what if and and also like who has the most vested interest in their community aside from the people in the community it's like the way that you handle something in your house or next door to you is going to be completely different than how you imagine, you know, a couple cities away. Yeah. And it, I mean, this is hard to think about sometimes for myself as a sex worker, you know, in a community, I live in South LA, mm-hmm. right. And I've had to keep like very low profile in order to stay safe in a place where, um, I'm not sure that, I, I, so I don't do in calls in my home. Mm-hmm. I don't bring clients into my own home. Mm-hmm. So no one in my neighborhood has ever seen me with a client, Yeah. right? But they definitely have seen me leave my house at all kinds of weird hours. Yeah. They've definitely seen me in my boots. They've definitely <laughs> seen me, you know what I mean? Like yeah, there's, exactly, a cer- exactly. th- there's a certain way in which like I'm, I'm under the radar in my neighborhood. My land, like I said, my landlady lives next door. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to be very, very careful. And I have a cover story Mm -hmm. because I also work at a university. Mm -hmm. Oh, So I have a like the shield of academia for sure. I do. I have like a vanilla story that's totally plausible. Uh Um, 
But when I think about connecting with my neighborhood or my, you know, where I live, mm -hmm. my community is not exactly where I live. Yeah. I don't have anyone within 20 minutes with a key to my house. Mm. My neighborhood is not my community right yeah. now. And I wish it was. Yeah. But I am afraid of being out. I, I'm, you know. For like a million and one reasons. A million and one reasons. For sure. And I think that for sex workers, like I can talk a big story about like neighborhood, 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 community, but yeah. actually for a lot of us, our communities are not our neighborhood. No. And I think, you know, that's, that's with anybody in like street industry things like illegal industries or under the table industries. Like there is like this, we have to protect ourselves, you know, even from our community as unfortunate as that is like something that could be a source of support if we had like a greater understanding of of just how a lot of these like non-traditional economics work, you know, like we have all of these informal economies operating and they work, they, we somehow all coexist. We all pay rent. We all like, you know, share houses side by side and, you know, we put out our trash on whatever day, mm -hmm. like we have this, you know, movement together, but somehow like whenever we put it, bring it all to light, there is like, it becomes a threat. And we became, we start to look at each other as threats and things like that. And that's very unfortunate. Yeah. And the self-concept is getting threatened right now too, right? Yeah. Like, I think there's what you just said about trash. I was thinking about that yesterday. It was trash day yesterday. And I was like, oh, so grateful they're still picking up trash. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that's wonderful that they're that still too. picking up trash. that too. Because if they stop picking up trash, uh -huh. which they won't do because of the disease threat, right? Oh yeah, for sure. They will keep picking up trash. They'll, they'll quit other city stuff before they quit the trash. Yeah. But let's just say, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, they quit picking up the trash. What are people going to do? Mm -hmm. I think about that too. I'm like, what's going to happen whenever rent is due? Maybe, maybe people can afford this month. But what about the month after that? Most people live paycheck to paycheck, realistically. What's going to happen whenever everybody gets that bill? You know, how are, like, what is it going to take for people to take to the streets? You know, to do whatever, to do whatever. Is this the way that the revolution happens? <laughs> like, I know it gets so cheesy and like, I'm definitely such a deep, like, leftist, um, but it's like, it doesn't take much whenever these little, you know, signs of structure and ways that we feel like our world is in control, like start to fall away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't think of, I mean, I use the word revolution in a, in a way that I wish there was an easy way to make it plural mm. because I don't think of it as. It's not a single revolution. It, right. We're not going to have like a moment no. that then we're like. Hey, and after the revolution, we've here we are. Suddenly shaken you know. off the, no. <laughs> no, but there is a sense to me of like, you know, if we're just talking about the way social and political and economic change happens, we can use the word to refer to change that happens quickly and that has broad effect, right? Mm -hmm. There's changes that happen. Reform changes are small and slow. Mm -hmm. Revolutionary changes are fast and broad. Mm -hmm. They're big changes that happen fast. That's what I mean when I say it. Yeah. And so in a, in a way, we're already inside of it. Mm -hmm. Because the fact that this many people can be convinced not to leave their homes based on what they're seeing on their phones is kind of shocking. It's totally shocking. I mean, I'm from Oklahoma and 
everybody out there is like, you know, survivalist mentality. Like I live alone on my farm with my gun and my pickup. Like we have our bug out shelter, like we have our tornado shelter and we could be self-sustaining for however much time we need to be. Like it's, it's just like deeply ingrained mentality. Like, and it's, and even out there, people are not going out. Mm-hmm. Things are not happening. Mm-hmm. Prom is canceled. <laughs> So sad. I know it's kind of like it's it's so like low on the totem pole, but it's also like these little things are just such big morale, you know, effectors. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. People need social gatherings to stay healthy. Period. Yeah, totally. So the longer we go without them, the more we're going to see the effects of social isolation. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that also like just keep grounding the conversation in, in the sex work mm-hmm. world, like, yeah. you know, what is our role in keeping people sane and healthy totally. ever, <laughs> but especially now, you know, like yeah. I, I think of that as a, as a calling, but just kind of sort of, you know, I think of that as, a, um, oh, how do I use non-superstitious words for it? it mm-hmm. It's like one of the most important things that I do with myself mm-hmm. is to, uh, create spaces of pleasure for people who need it to be sane. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I totally feel that. I mean, I've been checking up on on people, like all of my clients, um, just to see like, what's going on? What are you doing? How are you feeling? Also, like for my own personal needs, like, you know, how can we also like support each other? Like I provide pleasure. You help support me during this time whenever my workplace is shut down. I should also say that all of the clubs, all of the nightclubs and uh, um, so many other important establishments are completely closed right now in California. Only like crucial things. Well, somewhat crucial. I know like a lot of fast food chains are still open, but I guess in a way that is crucial because it's like that, that super cheap kind of food that's accessible to people. And it's for better or worse, just become an integral part of how so many people eat. Well, the mayor of Berkeley has let the weed shop stay open, which is really nice. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, I feel like we also need that. Um, my friend yeah. is like, my friend is like, please, like, can you please send me weed? Like all of the delivery in New York is like not happening right now. And I am having terrible anxiety mm-hmm. and I'm like unable to function and I'm just having outbursts. I'm like... It's, you know, people want to downplay it, but like weed is definitely medicinal for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. It really keeps a lot of people sane and it's, you know, there's some some necessities that we don't even realize are necessities or we don't want to acknowledge societally are. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think so to talk about sex work, there's been this kind of like, well, in-person sex work is out. So what about digital platforms? Um, So everybody's like, well. Time to make your OnlyFans, like time to get to camming, time to, you know, send your nudes or whatever. What do you think about this personally? Like, do you feel like you're able or wanting to, willing to make that transition? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a good way of producing content. Mm -hmm. Like I have an iPhone 6. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So like my, you know, and my, my laptop is super old and, you know, I can't run Netflix and Gmail at the same time. Like, like my shit's old. So I don't actually have the um, capacity capacity to, to like become a camera. Yeah. Um, 
also, I think, so I think there's a lot of us who are like in that situation where we actually, we don't have the tools or, um, it, it hasn't been our milieu. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be newbies who make all the bad mistakes. Exactly. Right. Cause nobody's like, I mean, I'm sure I could read a bunch of tutorials and I could get a bunch of help from my friends who can, cause I know a lot of people who do it, but is this the time for me to learn an entirely new facet of the industry? I've been a sex worker for 21 years. Mm -hmm. Is it time for me to find a brand new (laughs) niche? Like, are you kidding? No. Um, Like I'm fucking 40. I want to do what I'm doing now because I do it well. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think there's this mentality that that people think like all of the sex trade is just fungible. It's just like, oh, well, you do one thing. Well, why don't you just do another thing? It's like a whole other set of skills. It's it's (laughs) like, okay, well, you're a carpenter. Why don't you try plumbing now? Right. Yeah. It's, it's houses, right? You work on houses. houses. You work on houses. How about electricity? Can't you just do the wiring? Come on. Yeah. So one thing that I'm thinking of is, you know, because what I do right now is mostly in-person kink work, um, like I do some full service still. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's out. Right. Yeah. Um, that's not happening for a little while. Um, are and your, are your clients still on board with that? Or do you, how do you feel about that? Is it like a personal choice? Like I'm going to do this to, you know, keep the quarantine and follow the rules personally, or is it a, or is it like a lack of demand right now because everybody's scared or right. There's know, a lack of demand for in-person sessions. Mm-hmm. I have a few regulars who haven't canceled with me yet. Uh-huh. I have, you know, who have appointments in April. Oh yeah. But I don't have any work for the next two, two weeks. Yeah. Right. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Then there's the, the very real possibility that they're going to cancel in April. Yeah. Right. Because we can't, or because the dungeons close or right now. Some of those, what will, because who knows what will happen. Oh, happen, what will happen. Yeah. The, some of the spaces are closing a space where I see clients in San Francisco is closed for the rest of the month. You're not allowed to even, you know, like you yeah. can't take your clients there. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think that there's, there's ways that I'm having to, to be creative as far as like, you know, signing into night flirt more, mm-hmm. like getting, trying, trying to, to make some time for that. Cause being on the phone feels a lot closer to what I already know how to do. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a whole other set of skills. Yeah. But I've done some phone sex before. I've mm-hmm. done some doming over the phone before. And mm-hmm. so that doesn't feel like a brand new world. Yeah. It feels like returning to a set of skills that like aren't my favorite or best, but I can. <laughs> right. That's different. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I think people who are able to, um, you know, people who are able to make their money online, like keep making your money online, like mm-hmm. do what you can do, train up a friend or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, um, but for me personally, it's like, no, I'm not going to become a camera right now. That's, that's actually not how I'm going to be able to make it happen. Yeah. I mean, I also, I feel similarly, it's like, um, I mean, there's things that I might end up doing. Like I might finally make an OnlyFans. Like people have been trying to get me to do this for so long, but I just, I'm so, um, like, while I love making content and I don't mind putting like naked pictures of myself online, I still have like this personal like concern about producing porn of myself. Um, one, like I just don't really like watching myself. <laughs> There's like that whole like personal ick factor about it. Mm. Um, and I have, like I've cammed, I've cammed with my primary partner. We've like done web shows 
and I talked about it in previous episodes, but that ended up all over the internet, reposted a million and one places and downloaded for free by everybody. And so that was, you know, that really sucked. But it's also just like, there's so many tools to camming and like tricks about it that I just don't know. And I just, you know, you have to build your base. There's also like the issue that, you know, everybody's kind of in this bail mode, like this like fight or flight, like how do, are we as sex workers gonna continue to make money whenever our workplaces are closed for however long? So, you know, there's like the, the camming world is inundated by people like hopping on, you know, trying to get a piece of it. And I've seen articles like, oh, well, cameras are making so much money now. And it's like, well, you say that like one day, but then like the next day, like the whole internet changes, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it's just in constant flux. And it is also this world that is just like so deeply stratified. Like I have my hold in like the physical world because I think I inhabit space in like a bigger way. But online, it's just like I'm a little flash in the pan and I don't have like that special energy that I'm able to like, you know, bring literally to the table. Exactly. Yeah. I touch people. I touch people. I look into their <laughs> eyes yep. and like, and I, you know, like you can't even introduce yourself to people through camming, you know, like they pretty much all come to you. You know, it's all just like, well, here I am. Here's my picture. And I hope that you find me in this mass of yeah. hundreds of thousands of people. And we know that, you know, a picture for some people, the picture translates really beautifully. Yeah. I've been taking photos for all these years and consistently clients who come to me say, oh, my God you're so much better in person. Yeah. And it's like, well, duh, you know, like you can smell me. Yeah, you can, exactly. (laughs) You know, of course I'm better in person. And I take okay photos. It's not like I take bad photos. It's just that my in-person stuff is where I shine. It's where I'm I'm most focused. It's where I'm most into it. It's where I'm most uh, excited about, you know, creating change either in the body of the client or, you know, just in the moment. I mean, I, 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 I've said this a lot, like I've done a lot of jobs. I've done a lot of jobs and I've always tried to keep something in my life that was vanilla that kind of helped me, you know, bounce, like mm-hmm. bounce my sex work self against a little totally. bit. And I've, and I've stopped doing sex work for brief periods, mm-hmm. but never really that long. Yeah. Um, and so I know it to be the job I've had, like the set of jobs that I've had the longest and that I am most practiced at and that I love the most and that has worked the most to support me in my life. And when that is true, like I, there's a lot of people who do sex work in a, in a more casual way, which I just, I, I, I am making no value judgments about any of this. Props. There's people who do it for a a day, you know, to get a thing. Mm -hmm. Cool. I'm kind of a careerist, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm in it yeah. and I've been in it a long time. And I, and I know that there's a way that for me, this isn't like, well, sex work is over. Like that's not, no, that's not what's happening no. right now. We're taking a, a, a kind of anxiety <laughs> quarantine moment to figure out what we're going to do. But like, I expect that some of my regulars are going to see me in April and May yeah. because um, they know that that's how I will live. Yeah. And, and, you know, like we have to have some people in our lives who we have contact with. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I definitely am like 
hoping to see a number of regulars like for some out calls to like bolster my income in this time. I mean, like I'm lucky I've saved money through like my time working. So I'm like secure enough, but it's still like, you know, how long will this last and things like I need to support myself at some point, you know, um, it's, it's also just hard for me to stop working. Like I derive so much purpose from my work and like from and stability from having like, you know, schedule and stuff. Like it gives me sanity, even if it also sometimes makes me crazy. <laughs> no, it's true. Routine. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like you, like I have my vanilla jobs that I do, like my work outside of sex work that like, well, partially bolster my income, but also like give, you know, I think it gives me that like joie de vie that like, you know, customers love, like whenever I have this like thing outside of, you know, what I'm bringing to them that gives me life and joy and stuff like that. So, but it's, it's a different time. And I think we're all just going to have to adjust in our own ways and, and see what happens as sex workers. I do want to talk more about your, um, your night flirt stuff though, because I, we, I've talked to a couple of people, um, mostly like people who pro dom who do some night flirt stuff, but it's tends to kind of be like a tool to like suss out real, uh, clients, you know, like mm. if, if you really value coming to see me, pay me first to talk to me for this consult and we'll go on night flirt and we'll talk about it out. So I'm getting paid per minute, regardless of whether or not you actually show up, um, so I haven't really talked to anybody who like has done it for the sake of just doing it as, as a whole, as a whole hustle in itself. Um, can you kind of talk about how you got into it and um, what your profile looks like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't done it a ton. So I want to be I, like for people who are, you know, expert night flirters. And I'm thinking of a friend of mine right now who I connect me. <laughs> yeah, I will. Um, but because I'm using my legal name, I'm not going to call anyone out. Perfect. No, um, I don't want you to. Yeah. Everybody's safe. Everybody's safe. Everybody's safe here. But the, um, the, so I've only done a few, I've only done a few calls mm -hmm. this way. Um, I, I have had the night flirt account for years. Mm -hmm. I've had it for like six years and just wasn't signing in and wasn't using it. Mm -hmm. Here's what I like about it. You only need one photo to set it up. Of course, everyone wants you to have goodie bags with a bunch of other photos, but you don't need them. Mm -hmm. That's nice because yeah. for people like me who don't create a lot of content, having, you know, like not having pressure to be continually making photo and video content. Yeah. That's great. So there's that. Then and you actually use pictures of yourself. I do. Yeah. My face is all over my shit. <laughs> it just is. I made that choice well, years no, ago. I, I don't mean yeah. it in the sense of like protecting your identity so much as like, you know, you can choose like any body and pretend to be them. And I feel like there's kind of like this, like I'm tempted because of the liberation of like, oh, I could like pick out anybody. Like I could just, you know, inhabit like all of the things that I see as like in the stratus of like power and privilege, you know, like I could just take that. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, do it. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I I think for me, the work of finding a photo that <laughs> is like a whole other, you know, like, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I also hear like people um, like paying like Insta baddies and stuff for a picture. I'd be like, hey, can I have this picture? Can I use it for this? I'm a sex worker. 
Oh, yeah. 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 Fascinating. Yeah, I know. It's an interesting uh, sub-economy. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess you can set your own price. Mm-hmm. So I set mine high. And I'm my account on Nightflirt is, is my pro-dom persona. Oh, cool. And I'm just like, you know, I've heard it all. Try to impress me. Oh. Something like that. Yeah. And... Um, I think for me, the fun part about being on the calls is that because it's so anonymous, I don't care <laughs> what's going on. Yeah. You know, like I'm used to being in person and having to be very vigilant about my safety. Yeah. And Night Flirt is like, what are you doing? Where are you? What's happening? Oh, okay. All right. Here we are. What's the story? Oh, you want to talk about poop? Okay. Oh, you want to talk about fucking this pillow in your hotel room? That's disgusting. Okay. You want to talk about, you know what I mean? Like there's something very like, uh, entertaining for me Mm -hmm. about just encountering whatever that sort of safe anonymous (laughs) space is Yeah. because, um, I can hang up. Yeah. (laughs) I can hang up and block them. You Uh know what I mean? And because of the way that the platform works, they really, they, that's it. Yeah. You know? So I, and I haven't encountered, I mean, I just, like I said, I don't do it a lot and I'm not, I'm not very active on there. Although I think that's what my next week is going to be. Yeah. There's a lot of hours signed into night flirt being Uh like, come on boys. Um, (laughs) Come on boys. (laughs) But, you know, it's it's fun. It's fun to be in a more playful space. There's a lot of pressure on me um, in person, in pro-dom world to have it all under control, you know, to maintain a certain equanimity about every moment. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it takes a lot of energy to show up for that. And I love it. It's what I do. But at the same time, I flirt, you know, I'm like painting my toenails. Being yeah. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm meeting lasagna. That's great. <laughs> you're, you're like, oh, I'm meeting lasagna. And you're like, no, I'm licking pussy. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. So I, yeah. And I think that the fact that I'm, I, I have been at this so long, I have heard all the things have been around, you know, like it is kind of hard to surprise me. Yeah. And so when a client on night flirt says something that surprises me, I crack the fuck up. Really? You know, and I'm just like, wild. You know, like I have this moment of being like so pleased. Oh like my gosh. that now that I have not heard, you have know, you, how do they handle that? <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, they're each, you know, they're all, everybody's different. They're all, they're all (laughs) different, but I think it's very, very pleasurable, especially for submissives. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who call night flirt are not submissives, even if they Mm -hmm. call a pro dom. Yeah. You know, they, they want phone sex. They don't necessarily want to be dominated over the phone. Um, But someone who's actually submissive, that's like one of the greatest gifts of all is Mm -hmm. to make your dom laugh. Mm -hmm. It just, it's like, it lights them up. Mm -hmm. It's really fun. Oh, that's so cool. Do you, um, do you mind like taking people who are not like looking for doming? I don't care if they're paying the fee, they're paying the fee. How do you, okay. I'm so bad at phone sex or at communicating. I feel in sex, like in a, like dirty talk. I'm so bad at it. Are you naturally good at that? No, no, no. In fact, in my personal life, Mm -hmm. I prefer almost no talking at all. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah. How did you kind of, how did you, (laughs) how do you develop the ability to do that? 
Um, uh, is it kind of like playing off of what people are feeding you? I Yes. It's letting them do most of the talking mm -hmm. and making sounds mm -hmm. and also giving myself permission to be totally uncreative in this realm. Really? Yes. I, I'm like, what are my six words? I'm going to use those. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, and thinking and basically using formulas uh -huh. like a tone word or a, or an action word, like, you know, hit, rough, push, thrust, whatever, a tone, like a tone word. Yeah. And then a part of the body. Oh. And just like putting these things together. I want you to blank my blank. <laughs> I want to blank your blank. Let me hear you blank your blank. Right. That kind of thing. <laughs> I love this. I feel like it's like a book of like Mad Libs. <laughs> totally. Totally. And when I'm feeling like feisty, yeah. I, I will. I will like make it weird. Really? <laughs> because they've also heard it all too. That's the thing. A lot of clients who do phone sex, they've, they, you know, they've also encountered the, the normal. Mm -hmm. And so when you say something that's surprising, that's fun for them too. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can keep them on the phone. Even if it doesn't turn them on, mm -hmm. it can keep them on the phone. Do people kind of dip out like suddenly? Oh yeah. yeah. They'll just hang up. You're in the middle of talking, talking. To oh. oh, it's over. Like, okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye to you too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because they're paying per minute. Yeah, that's true. That's so the true. instant they want out, they're out. Yeah. I mean, the instant they're, they're done, they're done. What all kinds of sex work have you done in your career? <sighs> okay, so we just talked about phone sex and phone domination. I've yes. talked about in-person kink work and domination. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done, so foot stuff, which is, of course, kind of under the umbrella of dom stuff, but isn't mm -hmm. exactly the same. Mm. Um, I have done full service in a couple of capacities, like sugar baby for sure, mm -hmm. um, escorty, which for me is a little bit different than sugar baby, but, but similar, mm -hmm. similar where, where you have to dress up and there's a dinner date. Mm -hmm. um, I've done hourly um, where there's no pretense about what happened. What's happening. Yeah. Uh, I worked in strip clubs um, for years. Um, How many years? Well, I would take breaks. So probably eight. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, on and off started. So, the first time that I ever stripped was in 1999. Uh, and I, then I had to take some time off and then I worked from like 2001 to 2005 and then I had to take some time off, but I was burlesquing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so there's all of these kinds of times when I was like doing other forms. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of um, like sex work adjacent burlesque, cabaret, performing with bands, mm. that kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of photos. I've done some. I've done some videos and some photos. Um, I guess I've also done some stuff that's not really classifiable, like I like clients who I didn't have um, penetrative vaginal sex with, but I did like kind of informal tease and denial mm. before I knew that was a thing. Oh. Like a client who I was like, I don't think I can have sex with this guy, but maybe I can get him to just jack off and pay me. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. So I've done a lot of like those kinds of odd, like, I feel like my life work is out. in denial. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely my love language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I like you if I want you begging. 
I love, I love tease and deny. And as a stripper, it was definitely my, like yeah. the lap dance where somebody's just like, I'm going to die. Yeah, like that was like, my, I need to go. I'm yeah. in pain. <laughs> my favorite. That's yeah. my favorite. I definitely, definitely stripping taught me that, mm-hmm. that that was something that was a power I like to have. And that Makes was a sense. feeling I like to have. Yeah. Um, and I've worked in clubs where you were topless and I've worked in clubs where you had to keep your top on and I've worked in full nude. Mm-hmm. The whole gamut. Yeah. Wow. I've never been a pro sub. Oh, okay. I've never been a pro sub, but I, because of my years in vanilla work, mm-hmm. um, I feel pretty clear with myself that I was asked to be a submissive for many of my clients. Yeah. Um, which maybe I felt in a certain way because I'm a top mostly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, sw- I switch in my personal life. Yeah. Um, but as a, as a sex worker, that, that, that desire that to do heterosexuality that, that men have where they want mm-hmm. you to do it a certain way. Oh yeah. Um, and they want to order the food and they want to have their hand on the small of your back and like all of these little things that like yeah. are just like not part of how I actually operate in the world, but yeah. I would do it for work. I, I felt like I was being asked to be a sub all the time. <laughs> and so when I first started training to be a dom, yeah. you know, most people think you should be a pro sub before you're a dom. Yeah. yeah and I was so like, listen, times. I've been a hooker a really long time. <laughs> I just don't think I need to do all that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, I think I get it. <laughs> and I get it that it's different. Like yeah. not, to, it, this is no disrespect to the art and the work of pro subbing. Yeah, it sure. was, it was just that I felt like, can, can I please, can I please skip the intro class? Cause I cannot. I don't want to, like, I didn't, I didn't, at that point I had been, you know, and I'd had also assault, right? Like I'd Mm. also had assault. I'd had a client who wanted to do rough stuff that he did not negotiate. Mm -hmm. I'd had a client who wanted to, wanted me to sub for him Uh without having any conversation with me about that. Mm. And that's assault. That's not kink, right? So I had gone through already situations that had been bad for me. And I was like, you know, when I, yeah, when I first started training to be a pro dom, I was like, I think I'm ready to just step right into this Mm -hmm. one. I want to step right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can imagine. I mean, there are a million and one reasons, like, especially as a woman to, to be like, I don't know if I'm ready for this kind of thing. And this is not to downplay like pro subs because that is like a challenge that I am not capable of. I think like, I think I'm just, I'm too scared. I'm scared of men. Um, I think of all the sex work jobs, it's one of the ones that I respect with the most like, like bodily deep sense of like, this is so hard. (laughs) Like I think of it as so hard. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible to me. So, um, and how do you identify like sexually in your personal life? Yeah. Um, so I say queer, uh, I'm pansexual. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know that was a thing. I was calling myself bisexual for a really long time. You know, there's been this like recent kind of re, re mm-hmm. reclamation of bisexuality. Yeah. As a word. I, I hear that. I like it. I will mm-hmm. do it. I think there's a lot of spaces where it makes sense to use the word bisexual and I will use it there. Yeah. Pansexual feels more true for me just because of how many non-binary and trans bodies I have loved and wanted yeah. to be with. Um, and the- well, well, I just mean, so within the reclamation, like people are just saying that like bisexuality was never meant to be like a turf term. Like it was never meant to be trans exclusionary and it was meant to include trans people, but it just kind of got turned into like this, you know, negative term. Right. Yeah. I like, I like the, 
reclamation because of the way that um, erasure has been such a huge part of my life, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to distance myself from the term bisexuality because um, I know that if I was, that would be because of internalized um, sense of erasure. Yeah. Because I have, I have had a lot of very painful erasure (laughs) around my sexuality because I do have attraction to men you know, and so my mm. queer partners have often had a lot of trouble with that. Mm. My, my, you know, there's, there's a lot of like difficulty in creating space for uh, what, what I, a friend called my wide open libido. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It's gotta be my, your memoir, my wide open libido. <laughs> like I don't, I really do have this sense of like hearts before parts kind of stuff you know what I mean like if if I'm into somebody I will enjoy whatever it makes them feel good yeah whatever part of their body whatever their thing is you know and I've um like I've learned how to have sex with disabled bodies and I've learned how to have sex with bodies that were um you know 30 percent untouchable Hmm. right or whatever and I think that that's so I identify as queer because I think that that's the quickest easiest way to just be like quick and dirty, quick and dirty, like you know, what are you? And I'm like, well, I'm you know, queer, you know, I'm queer. I like, could write an essay. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't yeah. know. Um, and I also feel like it's been hard. It's been a long journey because I came out late in life. I fell in love with a woman late and was very confused. Um, I was raised a Christian. How old were you? <laughs> I was in my late twenties. I was 28. Uh huh. And I had messed around and had some threesomes and like had some feelings, but I wasn't, I hadn't like looked myself, like I will never forget. Like I had sex with a woman. I looked myself in the mirror and was like, it's different now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is love. (laughs) You know, like life changes (laughs) right now. (laughs) And I did, I mean, and I was very much in love with her and we were together for nine years. Oh my God. That's such a long time. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) That's real love. (laughs) (laughs) We're, we're still very close. We're still very close. I love that too. Yeah. No, we, we did, we did our work to stay in, in contact. You know, the relationship was too valuable and we turned our, we turned our trauma bonding into actual bonding. Um, But I think that that, you know, for me to have a process that took so long and was so arduous because of being raised Christian and because of all of the internalized homophobia that I had and all of the ways that I'd been fighting myself for years and the, and the difficulty I had with understanding what it meant for me to be attracted to like pretty much anyone. I'm also foundationally non-monogamous in a way that mm-hmm. was really difficult for me to come to terms with. Cause I have hurt so many people's feelings. Yeah. Um, I just, feel that, <laughs> you know, just felt like I'm a bad person cause I can't keep it together or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think that for me, like having a sexual identity that has labels on it has caused a lot of harm. Like every time I try to figure out how to label it correctly, I will do it for political purposes. Like I said, like, oh, we're doing, you know, by reclamation. All right, great. Like I'm with it. But when I sit down and and look at myself and and like really feel into my body, like I don't want to have to name what I'm doing. I know. (laughs) Oh my God. I could not feel that in a more personal way. (laughs) I definitely struggle like as a person who also is like, grappling with like I am so deeply non-monogamous 
and like you know it it's not a sexual orientation per se people don't want to call it that but I feel it might be like I like I definitely feel it in a core way like I will never be able to be happy and myself with just one partner like until I die until we die (laughs) it's just not in my DNA even for like you know years like I still it's just not how I love it's not how I love is what I realize and it's not something that I can just you know compartmentalize and put aside yeah and I think I've been very affected by how pain makes me contract Mm. into like I can't handle the difficulty of poly you know world or I, I asked a partner to be monogamous with me in a time when I was in serious heartbreak uh-huh. and it backfired terribly, oh, but God, it also, yeah. you know, it was, it, I had never done that before also. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, it's like, there's ways in which we move in and out of our strength in these moments, right? Where like, mm-hmm. I can say I'm a non-monogamous person, but like, there's a lot of people in my life who have been monogamous with me for some stretch of time yeah. who know what that looks like for me to try to be monogamously connected and sometimes it's really beautiful, right? Like when you're first falling in love with somebody, oh, yeah. sometimes you want to just only that person. You just want to be immersed just, in that. Yeah, you yeah. just want that, you know, and maybe that lasts for a year or maybe that lasts for, you know, five years. Uh-huh. But still in some way, there's always going to be a return to like me being myself is me being free Yeah. to touch the bodies I want to touch that want to yeah. touch mine. Yeah. And I, I, I've... I'm really trying to be in love with that part of myself now. And it's hard because like I said, I have a lot of guilt associated with my, my sense of non-monogamy being a foundational piece of my sexuality. So I hear that. And I think that there's, you know, I've worked really hard on the queer, like uh, dealing with internalized homophobia and my own like sense of difficulty about being queer. I've worked really hard on that. And I'm like really trying now to sit with what it feels like to be somebody who you know, I'm attracted to people who have intense desire and intense forms of love. Mm. Often they are monogamous. Mm. And so how do I deal with the fact that like, I'm often attracted to people who want to do hierarchical poly or yes. they want to do, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm, I've, Oh my God. <laughs> no, it's, it's so you hard. Know? Like even whenever I, and I, so like I use terms like primary, but it's not because that's how I feel. But it, I mean, it is in some ways useful. Like, you know, when I say primary, it's because I spend the most time with this person and I share a home and income and things like that, you know, like Mm -hmm. that kind of primary, but it's not necessarily emotionally primary. Like, I feel like I I love generally Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I can't really just like, like, let me pull out my measuring cup for my love for each person. Right. It doesn't feel that way. It doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't work that way. And when we're dealing with the logics of monogamy about, you know, you have a slot in your life, which is romantic partner and you yeah. fit a person in there. Yep. And then if they don't fit, you kick them out and you fit another person in there. Mm-hmm. The, that's the way monogamy works. Mm-hmm. I, I, it feels so confining and so wrong and so unpleasant to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think people who have been romantically involved with me, I'm like, I'm thinking about like a few people who might listen to this podcast. <laughs> people who have been romantically involved with me get frustrated by me not wanting to do regular coupling or regular breaking up. 
you know, where I'm like, yeah, we can transition. Uh-huh. We can transition into a relationship that works for us. Yeah. You know, and I do believe this. I, I, I really believe this. My ex-wife and I did it. Uh. You know, like we were together for years. We had a lot of struggle in that uh-huh. time. And when we transitioned, we made a conscious choice. Conscious uncoupling. To, yeah, to put down the romantic partnership and to start a familial relationship uh-huh. that had certain, like we made, we, we wrote it down. It was like, oh, what do God. we want from each other? What, how do we want to stay connected? Uh, what are we willing to do? How are we going to do it? And we did it. That's what I want. <laughs> oh my God. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Like we love each other a lot. Uh, we stay connected. That's, I mean, it's like for me too, like I have like one of my closest friends is one of my exes from like another poly relationship. We talk like multiple times every week. We have long conversations. We still really care about each other whenever like we're in the same part of the country, we hang out and it's just like friendly and warm. And like, that's just how I am. Like I, I'm a person who is not like a person who cuts off my romantic partners. Like, oh, well, this is it. You know, like, well, yeah. we're on, we're done with that part and I'm done with you and let's never talk again. Like for I me, don't do that. I'm just like, I loved you and I love you. Like, I'm not like, I just suddenly turn that off whenever we're maybe not romantically compatible. Like right. that doesn't, my feelings don't stop. Like right. I, I still care about, you know, your well being. I want to know what's going on. I care about who's important to you. We probably shared friends and we shared important places together and experiences like, you know, because one part of the relationship maybe fails us and even though I hate to use terms like failure because it's so didactic it's just like so like you know this or that it can feel that way though but it can feel that way but it's like I just because this part isn't working for us or didn't work for us like it doesn't mean that you know I don't want I you know I'm ready to just cut you off right well and there's there's two things I'd add to that one is there are people who I'm not in contact with because of safety issues yeah right um so if there's been a harm that's been caused in the relationship that has been so deep that we need boundaries, I will do that. That's different, yeah. But at the same time, like what you're saying, I'm thinking about how when I love somebody, like when I build love for somebody, it doesn't, I don't stop loving them like pretty much ever. Yeah. And it, I can lose contact with them over time. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's... Some people I dated in my 20s who I'm not in touch with. Yeah. Um, it's like natural. Whatever. You know, it's fine. But there's like, I can lose contact with them over time. But when I think about them or, or if they do reenter my life, if I get some wild email out of the blue, which happens, um, mm-hmm. I have a sense of such affection, like so much affection. Because once I love somebody, I love them. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, the transition that that happens with sometimes like a romantic partnership or particularly like a primary partnership that feels, you know, like we're, we were on our way somewhere and Mm. now we're going a different place. Like grieving that Mm -hmm. is required totally for the change to be full and for the change to be loving. Like Mm. you do actually have to grieve whatever it is you were doing before. Mm. And that's the part that I think a lot of people try to skip. They're like, Oh yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna hang out and like be cool and be cool. 
And it's like, no, you need time and you need to be like mad and sad and you need to step away from the spaces where you know you're going to see them with their other partners for a bit. Like, that's okay. That stuff's okay. It has to be okay Mm -hmm. to go through actual grief because actual grief is where real change occurs. Totally. So I think that that's. That's something that I, it took me a long time. I, it took me a long time to, to do that because grieving sucks so much. <laughs> like it feels terrible. Uh, yeah, nothing's, nothing's worse than grief. Nobody wants to be there. Yeah. You know, um, I certainly, you know, have done a lot of self-medicating and running from it. And, um, and so to be present with that pain, I mean, the, one of the reasons why, you know, my, my ex and I have, have this capacity to be close to each other is that we suffered it. Mm. We did suffer it. Yeah. You know, we did, we did, we, we met with a therapist and did a lot of crying and yelling and you know what I mean? Like we had to go through, um, this like deep, deep pain mm-hmm. to, to let it go. And I'll, I'll never forget. My therapist said to me, we had a couple therapists that we saw to do the work, but also I was seeing someone on my own and she looked at me one day. She's not a traditional therapist. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're allowed to say shit like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she looked at me and said, you know, Vanessa, this relationship that you have with her is a dead body on the floor and she's left the room <sighs> and you're still trying to give it CPR. Oh my God. <laughs> I was just like, okay. Uh, I mean, sometimes you need that. <laughs> what in the hell? But it was, it was helpful because it was very real. Like I was like, why won't she work on it with me? Uh, and the therapist was like, because it's over. <laughs> that part is over. That part is over. That part. Yeah. But the connection with the human being doesn't have to be over. Yeah. New relationship can emerge from this, but you literally have to let that one go to get to it. Yeah. I don't know how long I'm going to have to, I don't know how many times I'm going to have to learn that lesson. I feel like I'm going to have to learn that lesson probably over and over and over again. (laughs) You know, it just feels so hard. So yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Well, (laughs) and I got a kind of, I mean, I really liked this note. Um, uh, We need to pause for a quick commercial break. Maple syrup used to have more protein before the war. In 1999, manufacturers found a way to extract the... Hello, this is a live broadcast from my living room. To while away the hours, you may be wondering what to do. I have a great suggestion. Make an album. If everyone makes albums, then there will be more music. And if there's more music, it makes everything quite interesting. I'll be real with you. I want to hear what you all sound like. PSA, if you're buying sheets and you're new to adulthood, pay attention to the thread count on your cotton. Apparently, the higher the thread count, the softer the sheet. Polyester is less breathable and can get gross faster. If you all are looking for remote therapy, perhaps try Pride Counseling. It's an app. There are counselors who are LGBTQ plus allies or LGBTQ plus themselves. And also even counselors of color are available via call, text, or vid chat. And if you're poor, rates can be like 130 per month. Check it out. It's so useful for if you need to have a therapist but can't make it to their office. This is not sponsored. I just think it's quite useful. Maple syrup used to have less protein before the war. In 2009, manufacturers found a way to extract the... Hi, it's me, Clover. Just wanted to shout out that I love you all. Fuck the military. 
I hope you all stay healthy. Bye. Okay, so thank you all for tuning into this episode of How in the Know. Um, where can we find you online? Okay, so uh, my name's Vanessa Carlisle, and I got a Twitter and an Instagram that don't match. Sorry about Perfect. it. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am on Instagram at Vanessa Carlisle. Uh, my last name is spelled C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. And I'll put that in the bio. Yeah. And my, my Twitter is um, at V Carlisle. Um, any, you, any punctuation or anything? In no. Perfect. No. And, you know, I, um, you can find, so I'm, I'm a lot, I'm easy to find and I'm a lot of places. I'm a writer. I had a podcast for a while too called On the Dresser. Um, that was a sex worker podcast. That was a really, a really a joy to and make. We're definitely going to talk about that in the next episodes. So, Great. Um, you guys get ready. Um, so I'm easy to find and I'm easy to contact. Um, and I adore engagement. So awesome. So I'm Selena the stripper. You can follow me on Instagram at pretty boy girl. You can, uh, follow how in the know at how in the know on Instagram you can support this project via Patreon at The Real Pretty Boy Girl and also unlock all kinds of incredible stories that I have written about club life, uh, out calls, and so much more. They're so good. So uh, thank you all for tuning in to this episode of How in the Know. And uh, have a good quarantine, everybody. Stay safe and, you know, um, hug those that you're able to. And yeah. if you can't hug anybody, hug yourself. Yep. Okay. Love and peace, y'all. Bye. Bye. More money, I want your money, I want more money. 